welcome to episode 360 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we feature installment number two of three with acclaimed New York City visual artist and I would say icon, Peter McGough. Peter and I discuss religion about how he has beaten AIDS, being lucky, why we are here to experience joy, about the practicality of a suit jacket and caramel popcorn stands, being grateful and enjoying your life, among other things, a grand conversation, installment number two of three, with Peter McGough on this week's episode. We have an EW essay titled Undress and a poem called Contrite. All of this, as is always the case, of course, will be imbued, infused with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It is so nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 360 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours.
Undressed. A book of shame, the blame game going up in flames. A soulful man with AIDS bearing his soul as deep and dynamic as the Florida Everglades. A sweet succession of societal repression comforted by amber waves of grain. It eases the strain, buries deep the pain in a person. But it will manifest and come out somewhere else. Like when clouds transpire moisture from the earth's surface in San Bernardino and drops it down on Portland, Maine. Syracuse has no excuse for treating that young queer man as if he were lesser than we, though it did bode well for Brooklyn and Manhattan because there he went to share his heart, soul, and vision. New York City is his freedom from small town prison. Though one cannot completely escape their innermost soul-bearing cataclysm, and yes, we still undress while glancing at ourselves in the wall-hung mirror, with its ribbons and lace and special photos and postcards perfectly placed to set the tone and create a sense of home in this world. And every day we seek to position our face inside a ray of sunshine while sitting within plush cushions of temporal grace, showing not an inkling of a trace of fear. For we are transformed, my dear, our mind genuinely adorned when clear, with love and empowering humility, pure tranquility. And sex is not a dirty word, you old bird. And neither is freedom. So 
Hello. Hello, Peter McGough. Is that you? This is he. Thank you so much for being on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. It's E.W. Conundrum. Who's this? E.W. Conundrum Demure. Hello, Mr. Demure. <laughs> I, I look forward to talking with you. And uh, before we get going, if you don't mind, I'd like, I like to give the listeners some background information on you. Yes. Okay, here we go. Peter McGough is one half of the Artistic and Life Partnership that includes David McDermott. McDermott and McGough are visual artists known for their work in painting, photography, sculpture, and film. They currently split their time between Dublin and New York City. Among the subjects they approach are popular art and culture, religion, medicine, advertising, time, fashion, and sexual behavior. Their photography involves appropriating images and objects from the late 19th century to the mid-20th century, and they project an image of themselves as gentlemen posing as erudite, impertinent characters. They have since become well-known for their way of blending art and daily life. During the 1980s, McDermott and McGough dressed, lived, and worked as artists and, quote, men about town circa 1900 through 1928, they wore top hats and detachable collars and converted a townhouse on Avenue C in New York City's East Village, which was lit only by candlelight, to its authentic mid-19th century ideal. Peter published a memoir in September 2019 titled, I've Seen the Future and I'm Not Going. It's described as a compelling memoir for our time, told with humor and compassion, about how lives can become completely entwined, even in failure, and what it costs to reemerge, phoenix-like, and carry on. Troubadours and raconteurs is very happy to have on the program Peter McGough. Again, thank you, sir. Peter McGough and I had a two-hour conversation on Super Bowl Sunday, 2020. It was a beautiful, snowy winter day. And it was a grand conversation that uh, still means a lot to me. It's hard to explain why, but uh, Peter was a joy to talk with. I broke uh, this down into three 40-minute installments, and uh, we pick up with, in the second 40 minutes of our conversation, Peter starts off talking a bit about religion. Enjoy. Peter McGough. With Christianity, there's followers of Christ, what I think, and then there's Christians. Now, I'm not a, I'm not a, I was raised a Catholic, but I'm not like a, a, I don't accept Christ as my Savior kind of thing. But what he had to say was magnificent. And his message is very, 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 very clear. Love one another. Stop being greedy. Give away everything and follow me. And uh, Mike Pence, I think they're Satanists. Yes, <laughs> I agree. Because they're so cruel. How can you be locked children in cages and li- sleep at night and take them away? And then they're being sexually abused. And if they're Christians, Christ said when all those children, he said, leave them alone. Well, he, he's basically saying to people, leave them alone. You know, I can say, you know, Mike Pence and Donald Trump and his whole cronies, leave these children alone. The Catholic Church, leave children alone. 
because these children will grow up to damaged, emotional people. And, you know, that's why I think the world is so crazy. And it brings me back to how can I enjoy my life? I mean, if you're a Buddhist, if you're a Buddhist, and I know plenty of white Buddhists, and the message of Buddhism is practice loving kindness. It's a simple message. It is. Practice loving kindness. And no expectations. No expectations. No expectations. Expectations are, are just disappointments. I give up. I've given up on expecting things from anything. So I'm surprised that the book did so well because I thought, oh, well, who knows? I'll do it, but whatever. You know, so I've given up thinking when this happens, everything's going to be roses. And I'm like, no, it's just something that happened. Yeah, and enjoy the sunshine. Yeah, enjoy the sunshine and make hay while the sun shines. You know, I think that you know, it's incredible, and I'll bring it back to nature. Can you imagine what the Americas looked like? It was a primeval forest. It was the beginning of the creation. It was must have been so magnificent. And what's left is the Dixie Cup size of what was there. You know, they want to tear down the redwood trees even. You know, that's what's left. Those trees were everywhere, not not that species, but all the other trees. You know, when you see those loggers in the Midwest just cutting down these trees where 20 men could stand across on on the base of it, they were so huge. Those trees were so magnificent and so old. And then what? So we can overpopulate it like a virus and destroy it all. And but that's the world. There is no stopping it. When I was living in Times, off of Times Square in a five-floor walk-up slum, and I was happy to get it, and I was sick with AIDS, and um, I didn't care. I thought if I can just make it another day, I can just live another day. And then I got well, and I went right back to cynicism, and and I'm like, are you crazy? You survived. You survived what was considered the deadliest disease. And it was a hideous, hideous disease. It's not cured. You know, uh, Goldman Sachs, there was a question they projected on one of their lectures. Is finding a cure good marketing? And someone in the audience took the picture. Now, that says a lot. Mm. And I've believed that for decades. Of course, they're not going to find a cure for cancer. It's too much money. They're making too much money. Of course, they're not going to find a cure for AIDS. The pills are such a fortune. These people are raking it in in America. In India, it's $9. Here, it's you know hundreds of hundreds of dollars. Thousands. And so I think, why are they going to do that? But this is what I think. It's just the world. When I was sick and dying, that's what I was going to say. And I thought, the world isn't stopping because I'm sick and dying. This keeps on spinning. And when I leave and they go to my funeral and they throw dirt on the coffin and they say, oh, he was really nice. Hey, are you going to go to that movie screening next Tuesday? It's still going to go. And you think the world's going to stop and everyone's going to come to save you. 
forget it. Forget it. So that's why I think, do what you want. When I meet these young artists, they say, oh, what should I do? I say, do what you want because it's not about talent. It's not about mastery. There's so many people that I can't believe they're successful. I'm sure they think the same about me. But, you know, I didn't go to Yale to learn how to paint bad, you know. Uh, you know, they paint these bad paintings and people to praise them. And so I think, well, you know what? I like what I like. Someone asked me, are you the best artist? And I said, I don't know if I'm the best artist, but what I do, I like the best. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it. And yes, I love art. I went to see that Valtone show on the last day, that 19th century, turn of the century French painter. Oh, it was so beautiful. So that was for me, I loved. You know, so that's what art is. And you look at the colors and you see how they painted that pillow. And then he got a little bit more modern, you know, so, but that's an artist looking at art. And, but I think do what you want because you're going to die. You know, I had this woman I knew and she worked in a hospice and she, the last, you know, when you're in a hospice, my brother died in one. When you check in, you're not checking out. They're taking you out feet first. And she worked with these dying people. And yes, they'd say, I wish I left that relationship. I wish I didn't work that job. And they always said the same thing. I wish I enjoyed my life more. I wish I had more fun. Because this is it, baby, as far as I know. And please, I don't want to come back. <laughs> don't come back as, you know, whatever, a super rich Upper East Side girl or a, a, a kid in Bombay in a suburban neighborhood. I'm not interested in coming back. <laughs> You know, so I think the thing is, is that if one is living a daily existence and you don't like your life, find an exit, plan your exit, because who wants to croak and say under deathbed, I wish I had more fun, and then you're dead. I got to enjoy it now. And I have this kid who works for me. He loves to go into nature. He's in Costa Rica for a week, just walking through jungles because he says, I want to see the planet before it dies. You know, I want to see nature and, you know, he's younger than I. So I think, um, that's the thing, you know, I wrote that book and when I finished it, I thought, Oh, that was insane. I never have to do that again. Suffer. I never have to suffer. And suffering is not getting what you want. That's what suffering is. I mean, if you are dying of a terminal disease or you have lost a loved one, that's real suffering. Or you've been injured or maimed, that's suffering and pain, physical pain or depression. That's suffering. Not that your latte was cold. Not that you missed the bus. Not that somebody bumped into you while there's zombies on their phone. That's just annoying. You know, suffering, you don't want to suffer. I suffered. I suffered with AIDS. It was very painful. And I watched my friends die suffering, you know, and some would kill themselves because there was nothing. And so my attitude is I have to enjoy this life. And my sister said to me, wow, you, you really, you lived. I mean, you're here for a reason. And I was like, mm, ugh, I hated that, that question. But then I was thinking about it the next day and I'm thinking, why am I still here? What am I supposed to be here for? And I said, to, I heard myself say, you're here to experience joy. 
And I was like, okay, I'm in. <laughs> but it sounds really good for me. And having joy, people can hold, I read this many, many years ago, people can hold on to pain and suffering more than they can hold on to joy. Their, their expansion for joy has walls. It can only go so far because where do you go when you're incredibly, incredibly joyful? It really puts a, uh, I'm talking about real joy, you know, not frivolity, but that's kind of close. You know, when you're very joyful, they can't take it because it's like, what about all this? What about, well, how can I be joyful when this person's uh, on the street, you know, flopped out on the street? And, you know, that reminds me that, um, you know, in judging people, I know this fellow, he sells pop for a living. And I saw him on the street. And there's this homeless guy on 7th and 6th Avenue. Very, very dirty. He's really, truly one of the homeless ones. Not these ones that pull out a, a self a smartphone when they're begging. <laughs> and um, and I, he, he was just finishing. And I said, well, what were you doing? He goes, well, I take care of the homeless. That's what I do. And he told me a story when he went to Disneyland, he brought all of his family, paid for the flight, paid for the big Airbnb house with, you know, 10 bedrooms. And he said to his family, my wife and I are going uh, away for the day. And he went to a fast food chain and bought 150 burgers, 150 French fries, 150 desserts. And then he went to a, a warehouse and bought 150 bottles of water. And he went down Skid Row in LA and fed 150 people. Now that person's supposed to be doing some uh, the scourge of society, selling drugs and all that. And here he is doing what Mike Pence should be doing and Mother Pence should be doing. That's a person who is truly doing what they would say in the past God's work. Right. Taking care of other people, people he has not invested in as a friend or family member, just a stranger on the street. And, you know, I'm guilty of being a bitch on the street. I can't stand those phones. I can't stand people with their phones take, constantly taking pictures. Drives me crazy. But it's just an annoyance. And I'm saying all of this is that the world, I believe more and more with Eastern thoughts, when they say this is an illusion, it's Maya. Mm -hmm. All this insanity. And the whole Shakespeare thing, the idiot on stage telling a tale, you know, out, out, breathe candle. It's so brief. If the universe is 13 billion years old, we're a tiny speck on a tiny blue sphere floating in what? It's a mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing. It's a who. We could be on Whoville on top of a little dust speck on a, on a dandelion puff being held by an elephant, you know, trunk. It makes no sense to me that the vastness of the universe, when you look up into the sky, especially if you're in the countryside and it's a clear day, you can see it and it's so magnificent. You know, there was this science fiction movie called The Incredible Shrinking Man in the 50s. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. the ending is so beautiful because he's this tiny he keeps shrinking so he's tinier than a mouse and he's looking at this window <coughs> screened off in the basement 
and he's looking into the cosmos, into the vastness of the sky, and it ends with, I'm all a part of this. I mean, for a science fiction movie. It's incredible. So I think <laughs> that's what it is. We're all on this dust back. You know, if you fly a spaceship away and look at us, you don't see me in my West Village tenement. You see this blue sphere that I'm on. And people are like, oh, I'm so bored and I'm this and that. You're going to die like everyone else, you idiot. <laughs> and why? So you got a billion dollars. <laughs> There's somebody around the corner that's got, you know, like how Bloomberg says, like, Trump is just jealous because I've got, you know, 56 billion and he's only got seven if he has it. You know, big deal. You know, it's a Peter contest, you know, and I think I got to enjoy my life. And also, I'm grateful I'm alive. Sorry, I'm just pouring myself a glass of water. I'm grateful I'm alive. <laughs> I'm grateful for the life I have. Peter, it's wonderful talking with you. I'm not in a wheelchair. There's a guy I give money to on the L train subway. Someone threw acid in his face. And he has a sign with showing the, the whole thing, the hospital, this, that. His face is burnt. It is melted. And you think you got a sucky life? Look at him. Everyone's afraid of him. You know, he walks on the street and people scream in terror. And you think your life sucks because, I don't know what, you don't have the office corner? I mean, yawn. But I think uh, this is all part of my art. You know what I'm saying? This is how I create art. And being in the studio, for me, is the most joyous place to be. Because I can make the most absurd paintings I want. Whether they sell or not, without the thing like, oh, they're going to love this, they're going to buy it. If they don't love this, this is great. You know, I've heard other people say it about their own work. I'm doing it for myself. Is it therapeutic in a way? Does it help you deal with all of the... All children that become artists are nutso. And they, when I was a child, that piece of paper and crayons was a place that I could create a world that I wouldn't be insulted or beaten. And that was my outlet. And thank God I had that and my mother's encouragement. You know, thank God I had that. So I think, I mean, the visual artists I know, they're out of their mind. You know, crippling self-doubt and egotism thrown together. And, um, you know, I think uh, when I'm there, I'm so lucky. I'm a lucky person, I have to say. Even out of my misery, I wrote a book that people love. And uh, it, it got on the Amazon bestseller list. And uh, I'm lucky. I know plenty of writers. You know, when I got my, I got the top agency and the top editor and publisher. And I didn't even want to do it. I, I, but I wanted to write a book that I would enjoy reading. And I didn't want to write a puff piece that said, hey, look at me. I'm so great. I was. People said to me, wow, you're really honest in that book. And I thought, well, that's the kind of book I want to read. I don't want to write. Like, and then it was in the Riviera, and, you know, the Onceworths were there with, you know, the Kindly Heart. You know, uh, 
that's the kind of book I want to read. I want to read about beyond the appearance. And I, I just thought, just be honest. Who cares anyway? You're going to die. So who cares? Write whatever you want. No one's going to read it anyway. You know, and um, will people remember it in 100 years? I don't know. They might be underwater with their hair on fire. You know, who knows? But the future beholds. There's no telling the future. You know, that's why astrologists and card readers and numerologists, I mean, numbers, I was watching this thing on Tesla. Numbers are, it's like math. They were saying math is indisputable. It always comes out to the same thing. And it wasn't that we invented math. We understood it. It was already there. And so that to me is fascinating. The numbers of, of the uh, pentagrams and the square and the stars and all, all these numbers. But and shells, how they make this number. The, the, the formation of the inside of a shell. So it's fascinating. But I don't think a, a card reader on 6th Avenue, a psychic, is going to tell me my future. You know, people are desperate to know what's around the corner, what I have to look for. I don't know. How about, how about just for today, you know, just stay in today. That's how I get through my life is that I only have Sunday, you know, and I'm not going to a Super Bowl party, that's for sure. But, you know, if that's what they like, that's great. But it's just not my kind of thing unless the food was really good. I'd be there. <laughs> you know, that is. You know, and art is the expression of madmen. You know, all the artists, contemporary artists that I'm associated with, whether friendship or acquaintanceship, they're out of their minds. And then it gets to be this thing like, oh, well, you're painting, you went here. Like one artist is shown at this little gallery and one artist is showing where he's making 10 million a painting. You know, there's always somebody that's going to be better off than you or worse off. And... They're all crazy artists. Me, what about me? What about me? I made, I made this painting in the 80s, and it just said in these big Victorian letters, me. Because that's all it is. And this one art critic, Edith Dieck, wrote in Art Forum in the 80s that she should just print the artist's name in bold type in her articles because that's all they want to see is their name in the magazine. <laughs> and, yeah, they do. But if Instagram is an illusion, the world's an illusion. You know, it's, you think, and somebody's, I mean, I'm, I'm wearing these tailor-made suits. I look like I'm a multimillionaire, and I live very humbly. But, uh, you know, the, my friend made these suits for me, and they're beautiful. But the world's an illusion. People suffering behind their, you know, twin set and pearls. They're suffering. And, you know, we sell ourselves so short to look good and feel good, and advertisers you know, what's the the, stone, the Rolling Stones? I can't get no satisfaction. You're telling what kind of shirt to wear, how to smell, how to look. Or even Elvis Costello's song, What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding? You know, it's such an amazing title for a song. When you think of the hippies, I was like the last, I was like, if I was 13 or I was 15 in 1968, I would have ran away to Haight-Ashbury. You know, I'm a tree-hugging lefty liberal. You know, a Bernie Sanders-loving person. You know, I, I, I want everybody to have a life that they can enjoy as much as possible while they're here. 
There's enough for everybody. There's enough sunshine for everyone. And it's just ridiculous that the hoarding of finances to live in the top of, I mean, it just goes all the way back to, you know, I mean, Caesar, I was reading this book on gladiators, and they had a quote before one of the chapters of Caesar, behind every great fortune is a crime. Mm-hmm. And that's Caesar, <laughs> the ancient world. And what's left of the ancient world is broken statues. That's all that's left. No, nothing other than some writings. You know, they burnt the Library of Alexandria, the greatest library of the ancient world, and there's nothing left. The pyramids are all taken apart. All the jewels of the palaces are taken out. You've got the Taj Mahal. But there's nothing of the past that's left. So that time time is... It's all, it's all an illusion. That's what I think. It is an illusion. Time means nothing. Is Einstein's uh, uh, theories of uh, relativity. When he said that, I looked at a clock, and when I'm talking to a pretty girl, it passes really fast. But when I'm doing some work I don't want to do, it's, it takes forever. And I'm more conscious of time lately. Even when I'm looking at, I'm lying someplace or sitting someplace, and there's a clock, and I think, oh, God, it must have been. Oh, it must have been like 20 minutes, and it's only like three minutes have gone by. I'm like, time is just, and I'm not saying it means anything, but it's just the awareness of time, and I think that's what our work was really about. And I think that's what McDermott's indulgence and insistence in living in a different time period was about, that this is, he called it a time death trap. We're all marching off a cliff to a time death trap. And, you know, that says a lot about contemporary life. You know, he comes from the 60s and the 70s. That He was in the early 70s. He was in college. But you know, the world was a much different place in the 70s. Even if you went to someplace like, you know, Michigan, the towns were so old-fashioned. When I grew up in Syracuse, the downtown, it still had caramel popcorn shops from the 40s that, you know, people went and bought their popcorn in or a, 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 a restaurant from 1917, intact diner, you know, with these pea green big booths, painted high back booths from the teens. You know, and now it's all just, you know, uh, nothing. You know, it's a box, a square. When they used to rent apartments in the East Village, they didn't gut them. They just painted them. They just paint another slum color, pea green, hot pink, yellow, whatever cans they get on sale. And they paint them and you'd move in and you'd have a 1930s stove and a bathtub in the kitchen. <laughs> and um, now they gut them because they want to rent them for three to $5,000. You know, they, they found a market. So if they gut this apartment, they can rent it now because people don't want to have that kind of slum living. I'd prefer a slum any time over a white box, that's for sure. You know, I, I, I would prefer that. Because it just seems more genuine? It has history? It's more interesting. It has history there. Yeah, you know, I have this uh, apartment, and this photographer came to photograph it, and I, I called it Shattered Chic. I moved out of a 1930s luxury building to take this 1905 tenement two blocks away in the West Village because it was so much more interesting to me than the perfect, expensive, 
apartment and all the furniture I had in it. It just was, I wanted this apartment. It had sliding doors that had etched glass on half of the door. You know, it's something I just saw it and I said, and I knew it was a slum. But my friend had made it so nice and I moved in after he moved out. And, um, you know, I thought, and I liked it so much more better than my other apartment, which was much more roomy and more room for entertaining. But, you know, I wanted to have a different experience. I was in that apartment for years. And um, I think that, you know, you want to have a life you can enjoy. You want to have a life full of experience. I was, you know, I was thinking that, you know, when people say, Disneyland's my greatest place on earth. I could live there. I could live there. My attitude is get a snow white dress and wear it to your cubicle at work. <laughs> <laughs> you can do it. You can do it. If they started a religion, I think in, you know, in, Nor- in Finland or Norway or something where they wear a, 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 a colander, spaghetti colander on their head. It's part of their religion. You could do anything and say, I'm the, I'm, my religion's Snow White. If you want to live in Cinderella's castle, take your suburban home and, and paint faux stones on the wall and hang a tapestry from, you know, whatever store, 99 cent shop. Yeah, but then make it like that. society would scoff at you and say you're crazy. Yeah, they're not crazy. They wake up, they look at a screen. It used to be the TV. Now it's their iPad or their phone. They look at a screen. They look at a screen on the subway going to their job. They sit in their cubicle. They look at a screen at their cubicle. They go to the gym and they run in front of a screen at their cubicle. Or they're plugged into a screen to listen to music. Then they go home and have dinner and they go and look at a screen in bed. So their life, that's insanity to me. That one is stuck on a screen that your whole day. And, you know, I was at this art party uptown and everyone's just like, you know, getting drunk. This great artist friend of mine and this woman lost her phone. And the whole table at part of this party had to stop because everyone knew how hysterical they would be. If they lost their, their phone, phone. Yeah. yeah. And I, and she's like, my phone, my phone. And I had too much to drink, and I'm like, my baby, my baby, I so much of my baby. So she was like, she was just about to cry. And then this Polish guy who was visiting the artist, yeah, I said to my friend, isn't there some kind of thing where you can find my phone? And my friend did it, and it was in someone's pocket. They took the phone by mistake, so they had two phones uh. in their, because they looked alike. But the hysteria, and I get it. It's an annoyance, but it's not the end of the world. No. And I just think, if you're going to be scoffed at, I mean, we walked around in capes and top hats and walking sticks, and we weren't scoffed at. We were, it, it just attracted people to us, which I couldn't stand the constant explanation. But McDermott, he just loved it. He talked to a flower, you know? And I think that, You're only here once, as far as I can understand. So if you're not going to, uh, you know, I dress up every day. I, I put this suit on for this photographer that I just had made, and I wanted it for this photograph, so I had to, like, rush it. And then I had to go to uh, an appointment, 
And I just kept it on with the beautiful shirt and the tie and the shoes and all of that. And, you know, but every day I have a beautiful suit. I could wear a different suit every day of the week and never wear the same suit until the next week. And a suit jacket works for me. I wear a suit jacket with anything, khakis or whatever, because it has pockets. Exactly. I do the same thing. I do the same thing. You've got about five pockets, two inside, two outside, one on the the breast, uh, on the left side. And that is my glasses, my uh, my wallet, you know, my keys. I, I, I don't know how people cannot wear a suit jacket because you have so many pockets for everything. You can put a sandwich in front of them, some of them. Yeah, you look good but, and it's functional. And people, like my friend, I went to visit his mother. He was in Provincetown, my friend Jack, and his mother was there. Yeah, I went to Provincetown. I wore white. Palm Beach 1930s belted suit, you know, with the belt in the back, the fake belt with the pleats. Mm-hmm. And I had on white box and a white polo shirt, you know, it was at the beach. And then I went out the next day and I had a navy unstructured blazer with these big shorts that were copies of 1930 shorts uh, to the knee. And I had it on the white box. And his mother was like, Peter must come from a very rich family. And he must be very, very wealthy himself. I came from a poor family. My father just liked to dress up. He had good taste in clothes. And But I, to her, his mother, who was a young woman in the 30s during the Depression, that's what rich people looked like. You know, rich people look like bums now, you know. And uh, I don't know if you say the word bums anymore, but uh, they look like bums. And... Uh, I think that I like to dress up. I I think to to wear a beautifully cut suit that's tailored to me, which I traded artwork for, you know, it's very appealing. And there was this study I read is that if you're in a suit and you cross the street against the light, people will follow you. But if you're just in blue jeans and a T-shirt and crossed against the light, they won't follow you. So it's very weird, the association with a formally dressed person, you know, uh, how those suits. You know, my grandmother was a maid in Philly in the main line of Philadelphia, and her sister was the nanny. Her husband was the butler. Her uh her sister's husband was the chauffeur. They're all Scottish servants. My grandmother raised me how to properly be at table. These are this is what the plates for. This is what all the forks and knives are for. You eat from the outside to the inside. This is the glass for water. This is the glass for champagne. This is the glass for wine. This is where the bread plate goes. And when I go to these very wealthy people's homes, I was on this Upper East Side, very lovely woman, you know, caviar as an appetizer at the dinner. And there was the butler with white gloves. There was the maid, serving maid, and there was the kitchen maid. And I'm looking at these people, and I was like, this is my family. This is where I came from. And I'm the child that made it, the third generation that made it, you know. Uh, and so it's very, I know how to be around those people. I dress like I'm an uptown kind of queen, but I'm really in a downtown art world kind of queen 
that, you know, I went to someone's birthday party at a karaoke place and I was just out of my mind laughing. I couldn't believe how funny it was. And there's all artists. They were mostly art dealers and gallery workers. But I had a blast. And, you know, I'm in this beautiful suit. But, you know, I look like something that I'm not, you know. And uh, even Degas said the most buttoned up people are the ones that you have to look out for because they're the wildest. There's <laughs> something I'm paraphrasing him, but you know I think that the message of my book is enjoy your life. What are you doing here anyway? If you hate your partner and you want to get out of there, get out. If you have kids, then maybe it's tougher. But plan your exit, or if you want to be something, <laughs> if you never make it in life, who cares? At least you got to see a sunset. You got to see the grand. Like, I'm going with my friends from school. I've known her since I was 19. I'm going to Arizona to her friend's wedding so we can drive to the Grand Canyon and through all of those beautiful deserts that I've only seen in pictures. And I'm forcing myself to go for a week where I could be like, I could be in the studio. I could finish this. I need to do this. And I'm like, see the world. See the world. I mean, children. I was reading. They want to. They. It's better to take them to the Grand Canyon than buy them presents at Christmas or Hanukkah or whatever birthday present. Take them someplace. Let them have an experience that they'll remember. Not some Peter toy that I got when I was ten years old. I can't remember what my mother got me other than art supplies. I. You know, but I can certainly remember when we went to the seashore every summer. You know, and I think that's the thing is to have an experience. People want experiences more than anything. But, you know, when you go to a concert or any place, everyone's taking pictures on their phone. They're like, click, 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 click. And my attitude is no, stare at it and get it into your psyche, this sunset. And I mean, it's tempting. I've taken pictures of them. But, yeah, I went to... Uh, Vermont, my friend bought this little camp, 1930s summer camp, you know, with just barely walls, you know. And it was across from a lake. And every night was this magnificent sunset. Some were blazing, blazing orange. And some were the softest pink. And she had no Wi-Fi, so there was no computer. My phone didn't work. I did all I did was make I brought a 1930s puzzle of a cop getting a tomato thrown in his face by a kid. <laughs> and that's what I did. I put it on her porch, on the table, and I set it up. And all I did, I did nothing. I did nothing the whole week. We'd take drives, I'd make meals or this. But my main purpose was I did I didn't even read. I was so enthralled in doing nothing. Just lying around, no appointments, sleeping as late as I wanted to, looking at sunsets and eating. And basically, that's what humans do normally. But then they have all added on is a label, clo- uh, clothing with the right label, a sneaker, a this and that and this or this. I got this phone. I got this car. I got this thing. I got the outfit. I got the money. Look at me. And it's like, that's great. I hope you really are enjoying it all. We're lost. Really? We're lost. What? We're lost. Well, I think it's from since the beginning. I think it's part of the, what they call the human condition. It just is that there's more now. <laughs> there is more. There is more. You know what? They just want more and more and more and more and more and more. It's unsatisfied. 
It's the unsatisfaction. And what I've learned to do is to be satisfied. I mean, I have a charming apartment, so charming that people want to photograph it for magazines. And then I have my studio, which I think is a dump, and this young, high-class British girl came and goes, this is so beautiful. I'm like, okay, well, I guess I got a nice studio. It's very sunny. I love my studio. It's all my artwork in it. I'm fat. Do I really need a big country house in the Hudson River Valley where every hipster from Brooklyn wants to get a house? I did it already. I have friends with houses in Italy. I have friends with houses upstate New York. I have friends with houses in California. I have friends with houses in the desert. I have friends with houses in London. I can go anywhere and stay at someone's house. Do I really need to have a house? The roof leaks, the pipes burst, the cellar's rotting, the this and the... I'm old. I did all that. I mean, we had a house in the Catskill Mountains that was an 18th century brick house. Tiny. We called it our miniature mansion. 1790. Never modernized. Never modernized since 1790. No plumbing. except an outhouse in the back. Away from the house. No heating except for fireplaces, and no running water. There was a pump outside the kitchen door. That's where we got our water, was from a pump. And I never had to worry about freezing pipes. (laughs) (laughs) It had a good roof on it, but I never had to worry about anything. And I didn't hardly even lock the place. You know, nobody was up there. And, you know, so I don't need a country house. I had country houses. I've had big got big country houses in Ireland with 26 rooms. It's all gone now. So it doesn't matter to me. But so I'm getting back to the point. He said, I'm grateful. When you think of the modern world, 300 years ago, we have lives. The ordinary person has a life of a king. Turn on the TV. You can get entertainment anytime you want it. You can go buy a top at the 99 cent shop or Hermes, whatever your wallet holds. You don't have to have it made. You don't have to make it. You can go to any restaurant. You don't even have to go to a restaurant. You call and they bring you your food. So you don't even have to leave. So you have anything at the touch. You have entertainment. You can turn on a radio to hear music. You didn't have to hire a musician. So, yes, the world has hideous problems. And all those things, if they mean anything to the person, they should be grateful that they can eat. Food, clothing, and shelter. I have my basic needs met. Most people in the world have zero or one. They don't have all three. That's most of Mm -hmm. the people in Mm -hmm. the world, when you think of all those continents. So what do I have to complain about? I beat AIDS. I'm on a medication. I I take the medication daily, twice a day. I don't get sick. I hardly get sick anymore. Uh, So what do I have to complain about? I've got a roof over my head. I can pay my bills. I can do all these things. But now God knows 
anything goes. Good authors too, who once knew better words, now only use for letter words, writing prose. Anything goes. If driving fast cars you like, if low bars you like, if old hymns you like, if bare limbs you like, if May West you like, or me unrest you like, why nobody will oppose. When every night the set that smart is intruding and new despot is in studio, anything goes. When Mrs. Ned McLean, God bless her, can get Russian red to yes sir, then I suppose anything goes. When Rockefeller still can hoard enough money to let Matt Gordon produce his show. Anything goes. The world has gone mad today, and good's bad today, and black's white today, and day's night today, and that gent today you gave a cent today once had several chateaus. When folks who still can ride in jitneys find out Vanderbilt's and Whitney's lack baby clothes. Anything goes. When Sam Goldwyn can with great conviction instruct Anna Sen in diction, then Anna shows anything goes. When you hear that lady Mendel standing up, now does a handspring landing up on her toes. Anything goes. Just think of those shocks you got, and those knocks you got, and those blues you got from those news you got. Contrite. Triangle of a shadow. Pointed rooftop made of paper blocking the light. Geometric conveyance of our physical might as soft and hungry as your desire to know unmitigated delight.
And there you have it, episode 360 of Troubadours and Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, Peter McGough, and these musical artists, Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, Lena Lovich, R.E.M., Cole Porter, Billy Holiday, and of course, Branford Marsalis and Terrence Blanchard, too. Thanks so much for listening. Until next week, let's give it a go and try to enjoy this one. Take care. <laughs>